0: Our first scripture reading this morning is from the fifth chapter to the letter of Paul to the Galatians, found on page 179 of the New Testament Bible. Galatians 5, verses 1, verses 1 and 13 through 25. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. But through love, become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires, is opposed to the spirit, and what the spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word.
1: we have a, a guest uh, a keyboard a guest musician pianist today because uh, Tyler uh, is off celebrating his grandmother-in-law's 100th birthday Tyler's husband's mom turns 100 this weekend and so they're celebrating and uh, fortunately we had uh, uh, M who was able to step in and accompany the choir gospel lesson from the gospel according to Luke we're in the ninth chapter. We're going to read verses 51 through 62 if you'd like to follow along, or you can just listen. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent his messengers ahead of them. On their way, they entered the village of the Samaritans to prepare for his arrival. But they did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? but he turned and rebuked them then they went on to another village as they were going along the road someone said to him I will follow you wherever you go Jesus said to him foxes have holes and birds have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head to another he said follow me but he said Lord first let me go and bury my father and jesus said to him let the dead bury their own dead but as for you go and proclaim the kingdom of god another said i will follow you lord but let me first say farewell to those at my home and jesus said no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of god the gospel of the lord let's pause and join with me in prayer give our spiritual ears extra sensitivity today our human ears have been assaulted by a lot of noise and so sometimes that drowns out what you want to tell our hearts So, just make our ears that hear your word attentive and open to the glory of Christ. Amen. And for the most part in the Gospels, it seems that Jesus is pretty pro-Samaritan. Jesus seems to, to like the Samaritans, which wasn't popular. You remember, of course, the story of the good Samaritan. For most Jews, a good Samaritan was an oxymoron. They didn't consider any Samaritan to be good. But, certainly enough, in the story that contained a priest and a Levite and a Samaritan, Jesus makes the third guy the hero. It wasn't a popular way to tell a story in Jerusalem to make the Samaritan the hero of the story. In fact, it would be like going to the exact same place in Jerusalem today and making a Palestinian the hero of some story. It wouldn't go down necessarily well with all who were listening. Who were the Samaritans, and why did the Jews detest them so? Well, you have to go back in history to when there were 12 tribes of Israel, 10 to the north and 2 to the south. Uh, they split up after Solomon's death when his son decided to raise taxes on the northern provinces to be able to bring more money into the capital city in the south, in Jerusalem. And the ten provinces said, "We'll forget that, we're going to break away and create our own capital in Samaria. So those ten tribes split away. You had the northern tribes of Israel and the southern two tribes of Judah. Following their independence and their capital in Samaria, not many decades later, the Assyrians invaded and the 10-tribe alliance to the north fell somewhere around 722 BCE. They seem to just disappear to history, well mostly. Big chunk of Jewish history revolves around the later trauma. Of the two tribes of Judah falling to King Nebuchadnezzar in 582 BC, about 200 years after they had divided and the northern kingdom had disappeared. The best and the brightest from uh, Judah were taken off to the capital of Babylonia, and there they were held for 70 years. When they were finally allowed to return under the reign of Cyrus the Great, Jerusalem and the temple were in ruins and the city was inhabited by by rabble what they called just pagans and horrible human beings but some of those who were there had maintained various Jewish customs those who were coming back from Babylonia of course threw them out they went back to the area of Samaria and the temple in Jerusalem was rebuilt by the returning Jews and they believed that was the holy place but these others observant people still had the same Torah they still had the same set of expectations and community and law but they believed that their holy place was Mount Gerizim and the Jews believed that it was Jerusalem now Mount Gerizim was the place where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac and so their holy place of covenant was where Abraham was told that he did not have to sacrifice his son and that's where the Samaritans held their sense of holy place and commitment to their sense of of rule it was separate from the Jews it's almost one of those cases where people who are closest to you in how they look and behave Turn out to be your greatest enemy because you don't want to be confused with them. Now in Luke 17, Jesus is on the border between Galilee and Samaria, where the Samaritans are. And ten lepers come. And they're all saying, stay away, we have leprosy. Back in the day, when you had this skin condition that was possibly contagious, you were required by law... To go off and live somewhere else so nobody else could catch it but as people came near you you would say stay away because we have a contagious skin condition and trust us you don't want to get it but at the same time these 10 lepers had heard that Jesus was coming along this road and they wanted to get close enough because they heard that Jesus had some sort of healing power and so they asked for Jesus to have mercy and Jesus tells them now go back to the priest to the temple in Jerusalem and talk to the priest and see if he won't declare you clean. Get a second opinion. Remember the priests were the dermatologists. They decided who got cast out of the town based on whatever skin conditions or contagious disease they may have. So they all turn and they start going to Jerusalem except one guy. One guy who is a Samaritan. He can't go to the temple even if he is clean. He had a permanent skin condition. He had Samaritan skin. And so his option of going to the priest to be declared that he is clean isn't open to him, but all of them were delivered from their leprosy and that one guy comes back to Jesus and falls down and says, Thank you. Jesus instructed them all to go, but only one came back grateful. He was a Samaritan. Again, it looks like Jesus likes the Samaritans, they end up being the positive example in instances where he sees them mixed. Now remember it was also a Samaritan woman who was at the well at John chapter 4. And they have a very conversation about the location of true religion. I'm going to read you that exchange. The woman says, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman replied, Jesus, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews, yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, and John parenthetically says the Messiah, which is the Christ, is coming, she continues. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus responds, I, the one speaking to you, I am he now Jesus very seldom admits that he is the Messiah others call him that and sometimes he confirms and sometimes he corrects as their teaching but the first time in the Gospel of John that he admits that he is the Messiah out loud is to a Samaritan to one of these moderately despised ethnicities that the Jews did not like so When the Samaritans learn that Jesus is going to Jerusalem and not coming to Samaria, they're extremely upset. There is nothing more disappointing than finding out that your Messiah is indifferent to your political agenda. There are few things in this world more disappointing than learning that the Messiah doesn't care about your political agenda. And so they're angry. We, my friends, are living in a dangerous time. I don't mean crime in the streets dangerous. Actually, it was more dangerous in the 70s, 80s, and 90s than it is right now. It was worse in 1991 in the city of Chicago for crime and violence and murder and attacks than it is right now. We've had worse. The dangerousness of our time, I mean, is the wholesale tendency to interlock political agenda with the perceived will of Christ. That's what I'm finding dangerous today. It happens often in human history, the assumption that God's plan overlaps with our politics it gives us the power to demonize the opposition and to deify our agenda when the Samaritans were hostile to Jesus because he wouldn't join their political party the disciples are no better do you want us to rain fire down on them like Elijah did they're now clearly our opponents so maybe they and Jesus said knock it off that's not what I am about at all what follows in the Gospel of Luke is not the next story what follows in the Gospel of Luke is an illustration of Jesus's point that it is neither for the Jews or against the Samaritans that he is going to Jerusalem someone says I will follow you wherever you go a good potential campaign worker, right? I'll sign up, I'll get people to register, I'll hang door hangers, I'll ring doorbells, I'll do phone surveys wherever you go! Jesus says I'm not going to a destination. Foxes, they have holes. Birds of the air, they've got nests. But The Son of Man has no place to rest don't follow me if you think that we're going to some arrival or conclusion the work of the Son of Man never stops another says I will go I'll join up with you after my father dies Jesus says the kingdom of God isn't waiting around to honor the past let the dead bury the dead they're in the past kingdom of God is looking Still another says, let me go home and say goodbye to my family and then I will join you. And Jesus responds, if you keep looking back, you're not plowing the kingdom's field. In fact, if you're plowing and you keep looking over your shoulder, your furrows are going to be a real serious mess. You have to be about what is in front of you, not a restoration of that which is behind. Now I must confess that this sermon arises out of the fact that I am beyond disappointed. I am beyond disappointed in some political decisions that have been made over the past week. Beyond disappointed. But I must also confess that my disappointment runs the risk of degenerating into disillusion. I'm disappointed and I'm tempted to be disillusioned. If I become disillusioned, then I am confessing that I had illusions in the first place. And that, my friends, is the problem and what makes these times so dangerous. That I had put my trust in the illusion that a political process would accomplish kingdom purpose. That I somehow believe that the politicians and those who support them and the public action and the voting and all of those things could accomplish what God wants to accomplish. And that makes me unfit to plow for the kingdom. Yesterday I had the privilege of having a very long conversation with a gentleman by the name of Stephen Shale. Stephen Shale was the Florida Democratic presidential campaign manager in 2008. Contextualize that. He was the presidential campaign manager in the state of Florida in 2008 and he was quite successful in leading that campaign. He is, on the other hand, not so optimistic ten years later. He told me that he used to end his political motivational speeches by saying, if you ever get cynical about politics, it's time for you to step away. If you get cynical, you should step back. Recently, he told me he's been stepping back. And I would suggest that may for us be a really good idea. I don't mean that we're not supposed to vote or be involved or engaged in seeking healthy change through the political process. I mean that we should become less naive about what politics can actually accomplish. It will not bring the kingdom ever. For followers of Christ there is no culminating resting place. Ah, we finally passed the final budget package or the right set of laws. Now we can sit back. There is no restoration of the glorious past that we once got it right and we just have to get back there and there is no target for some utopic future. It's the consistent, unwavering, unyielding work of putting our hands to the plow and moving forward the true work of the divine realm and that is not politics there's no law there's no set of laws that will usher in God's agenda as Jesus told the Samaritan woman the time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. It's exactly what Paul is grappling with in the passage from Galatians that Rebecca just read. After Paul had left the the Galatian community and had planted a church there, some others came and told the Christian community that there was a set of laws. And if they could just abide by these laws and and enact them in their community, then they could finally be better Christians. That they could allow themselves to just be guided by this set of statutes. And Paul is... Furious. Paul says we do not and cannot legislate ourselves into faithfulness. If you're led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law, wrote Paul. Because the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness gentleness, and self-control. Try and write a set of laws that will bring that. These fruits can flourish no matter what laws are passed or what laws are struck down. And I find that I have to sacrifice my political disappointment on the altar of pointless illusions God is not asking me to rain down fire on those who disagree but asking to kindle in me a passionate fire that seeks the spirit of truth and its deep eternal harvest against such no law can stand. Amen. Stand and join with me in the words of the Apostles' Creed is our affirmation of faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, You may be seated.